0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from ACAST. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too Hey, this is Trevor from
0: Halifax calling in to say that I support Creative Control on Patreon because I think long-form arts journalism is a crucial part of music culture and there's simply not enough of it out there today. Vish is a master interviewer, he lands great guests, and he has his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing music landscape both here in Canada and abroad. For all of these reasons and many more, I think you should support Creative
1: Control on Patreon too.
0: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Creative Control today. I'm Vish's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that.
1: Creative Control with Vish Mark Davidson and Parker Fischl are both American archivists and music historians based in tulsa oklahoma and chicago illinois respectively davidson is the curator of the bob dylan archive and the director of archives and exhibitions for the bob dylan and woody guthrie centers which are each located in tulsa oklahoma Fischl served as the co-curator of the inaugural exhibitions at the bob dylan center and he runs americana music productions which provides consulting research and production work for artists, estates, record labels, and others who wish to preserve and share historical archives and artifacts. Together, they've edited a new book called Bob Dylan, Mixing Up the Medicine, which was published by Callaway Arts and Entertainment on October 24th, 2023, and covers Dylan's entire life and career to date, and features over 1,100 images, including handwritten lyrics, manuscripts, and other rare or previously unseen works by Dylan, plus 30 fresh essays by notable musicians, scholars, journalists, and writers. As such, Mark and Parker have returned to this show for a wide-ranging talk about this essential new book, some of the fascinating essays by notable contributors, some of whom uh, seem particularly interested in Dylan's lesser-known periods, the clamoring from mythical recordings by the likes of Dylan, Charlie Parker and Fugazi, why I think Bob Dylan is trying to tell us he's very close to retiring the latest on the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa other future plans and much more a part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners just like you who follow and subscribe to this donor driven podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control that is the primary source of revenue for this show and i'm trying as always to uh, raise the monthly uh, level of support so if you want to contribute to that uh, it's most appreciated Uh, you can sign up for an annual uh, uh, donation or you can sign up for monthly donations and you can change the amounts anytime you want it's just that simple so please click on the link in the show notes and visit the creative control patreon and if you can support this show today thank you very much with additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with bricks and mortar locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta. And a really great website where you can order records uh, and things for yourself. If you want to order any music by Bob Dylan, I'm sure they've got it for you. Just go to blackbird.ca, type in what you want. And if they can get it to your house, if you can't make it into their stores, I'm I, you never know what's going to happen. I think it's possible. Find out at blackbird.ca. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Grandad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, each of which are wonderful, independently-run businesses. This is episode 828 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Mark Davidson and Parker Fischel, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey Mark, how's it going? Great. How are you doing, Vish? Oh, I'm 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 great today. It's nice to see you again. Where in the world are you today? I am in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Beautiful Tulsa. Nice. I I've been there once, as you know, and I uh, enjoyed it very much. How are things going in Tulsa generally? Uh, generally, they're going
0: they're going quite well. Quite well. Uh, Bob Dylan Center, Woody Guthrie Center, uh, both uh, wrapping up the year. Uh, making our plans for next year—it's—it's
2: it's a good time.
1: Uh, that's lovely to hear, uh, Mark. Thank you again for being on the show. And uh, Parker, how's it going there?
2: Good. Good morning, Vish. How are you doing?
1: I'm well, thank you. I'm full of pancakes and good cheer. It is a beautiful uh, day here in Edmonton, and well, it's overcast to be honest with you, but the pancakes make it feel like the sun is out. You know what I'm saying?
2: That's great. Yeah, that's the way to start the day. <laughs> what kind of pancakes did you
1: make? Today I made, uh, well, everyone has a different order. So my daughter Ramona, uh, requested a n- Nutella pancake. So you, it's a pancake and you, I do a swirl of Nutella. Like I have to, it's really awkward. You get a, have you ever, have you ever experienced the Nutella? It's very thick. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So yes, I'm nodding. You can all your, yeah, so you're, you're, oh, hear me nodding.
2: Perfect. Yes. <laughs> it's called,
1: <laughs> they are called nod casts. Anyway. Yeah. So I, yeah, I drip that. I do my best to drip that on there. And then, uh, for my, uh, son and my wife, they like, uh, I do a blueberry, lemon zest, cinnamon. They enjoy that. And then, uh, and then I also now have, uh, taken up, uh, chocolate chip and peanut butter chip wow. pancakes. And then I heat up the syrup and we had some whipped cream. That was delicious. Some coffee. It was I'm- great. I'm going to
0: Google the drive time between Edmonton and Tulsa. I'm going <laughs> to make it by next Sunday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, and uh, we'll talk about this, uh, reading your new book, I want to get back to Tulsa. I feel, uh, reading this book that I didn't take full advantage of my time at the Bob Dylan Center. And I want to talk to you about that because, uh, I already have, uh, like a envy and I was there. I've been there and you showed me some great stuff, but I'm like, Oh my God. We'll get into that in a moment. But, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Parker, where in the world are you? Uh, Chicago, Illinois. Chicago? I wasn't expecting you to say that. Did you? Is, how long have you been there? Between the time we last spoke and the, the time we're speaking now.
2: Yeah. Uh, last fall, last August, I guess. Um, wow. So summer. Uh, moved from Brooklyn, New York after many, many years to Chicago. Oh. So,
1: well, yeah, Chicago. I've got a
2: basement. And, you know, (laughs) I'm in it. It's full of records.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I see that. I can see that on my screen, uh, if I may. And we don't have to get too far into it. But why the move from Brooklyn to Chicago? The pandemic
2: just made life in New York a little crazy and Mm -hmm. uh, had a young child, which made it sort of even crazier. And uh, I have uh, retired in-laws here in Chicago who... Who are uh, very helpful. So, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Sort of
1: fam- family reasons. Well, if if, yeah. if for what it's worth, I think Chicago is a wonderful city. I have guests from Chicago on the show frequently. I uh, I, I love that city. So, are you enjoying it so far?
2: Oh, it's been great. I, maybe I'm still in the honeymoon period, but uh, just getting to uh, explore a new city and the music scene. I wasn't expecting it to be quite so vibrant as it is. You know from garage bands to experimental jazz and, you know, everything in between. It's, it's, there's always something to do. So it's very, been great. Yeah.
1: Oh, good for you. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I I love that city. Okay. Well, cool. It's good to have you back on the show as well. And I think, uh, let's see here. I wonder if Chicago, in terms of pancake time, I don't know if Chicago is actually closer than Tulsa from Edmonton, but we'll figure it out. I'll figure out a way to get you guys. What I'm saying is, you bring me back to Tulsa, we're all there. I'm making you pancakes. That's how it's going to work. If you enjoy, outstanding.
0: <laughs> or I, I am, I am also from Chicago and still have family and friends up there, so we could meet in Chicago. I, I would be oh, more than
2: happy. To okay. Do this Split the stuff. difference.
1: Okay. You, so,
2: you, you'll bring some of the manuscripts with you, though. Uh, yes. Mark? Yeah. I, okay. I always cool. have them Just in check my backpack. It.
1: So, yeah. so this is a nice segue <laughs> into this wonderful book uh, that you two have edited. Um, and it reflects the Bob Dylan Center which uh, uh, in a beautiful way. Let's talk about the origin of this book. And by the way, I will also say, I feel like you were holding out on me. You were likely working on this book when we first met, and you didn't say anything. You didn't spill any beans. It's amazing. Uh, Mark, tell us about the origin of this uh, wonderful new uh, book.
0: Yes, of course. Uh, we were indeed working on it at the time that the Center opened in May of 2022 when when you came to see us. Actually, we took a, a, a few-week break, I think, before we, we really got back into it. But it started uh, because the first curator of the Bob Dylan Archive, Michael Chaykin, who was involved in getting the archive to Tulsa, uh, came in 2016. Shortly after the archive came, he started bringing people down to Tulsa to check out the archive, to do a public program, and just to get a sense of what was going on on in Tulsa. uh, Michael Chaykin and his colleague Robert Polito, who's a a poet and uh, a professor at the New School in New York. So between, I don't know, early 2017 and the pandemic, we had uh, dozens of people come down, do a public program. They would Go through the archive, choose a piece that that uh, they like that intrigued them, and they started writing essays. And the last uh, event that we did actually, it was uh, right after we learned that South by Southwest had been canceled in in March of 2020. Uh, it, it was a general feeling of what's about to hit us, um, and we had Lucy Sant out at a dive bar, a wonderful dive bar here called the Cellar Dweller, reading from. Her previous books, and she ended up writing a very wonderful essay, specifically a 1964 notebook, with some tie-ins to some other notebooks. But that's that's basically how it how it started.
1: Yeah. So uh, Parker, can you speak to this wonderful notion of bringing people into Tulsa and to the archive to actually uh, home in on pieces that spoke to them? Well, or I guess. To follow up on what Mark's saying, I gather from these essays by these people that they may have come in wondering about a song or wondering about an era that, that spoke to them already. And they'd say, Hey, can you get me a box full of, uh, what, uh, uh, dignity? I want to know more about dignity, the song dignity, where the origins are. Can you speak to that impulse of bringing people in to do this kind of investigation? Um, cause it's a really fascinating one. And hearing people say, like, I had, I donned white gloves to touch these mylar encased archives, but still, like, through the white gloves, the spark of inspiration. And, you know, all of it's just wonderfully written. And I really appreciate it. I feel like I'm there with them. Long winded way of saying, again, Parker, can you speak to that impulse of asking people to come down, dig into the archives, and then write about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there on the ground when, when folks were coming through, Mark was really the one sort of shepherding them through the collection. I yeah. just feel like requests, like, do you know of anything that pertains to, you know, cause everybody has their list of top 10 Dylan songs, albums, whatever. Uh, and we all probably have overlaps, but then our, of course our idiosyncrasies as well. But I think, it's the first time you see some of this stuff. It's just like, wow, you know, that is part of this process that led to this thing. That's made, you know, this, um, sort of indelible Mark, you know, left an indelible Mark in my life and my psyche. And, uh, I don't know, Mark, do you want to speak to it a little bit? I know it was posed to me, but, but you were sort of, uh, there to gauge people's reactions as they were actually, you know, seeing this stuff and going through the boxes. Yeah, I, I, I will ask Vish two questions.
0: Yes. One, what period do you think most people wanted to look at and write about? And two, what would you want to
1: look at and write about? These are good questions. Um, well, it, given the intergenerational aspect of the makeup of the contributors, it's hard to say. And I've read the book, so I know that um, – for each sort of era of Dylan's career, you have people writing essays uh, about things. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm stalling to answer your questions. So I'm just <laughs> thinking here. I like to be right. You see what I'm saying? I would think the '60s, in general, maybe the late '60s, maybe, maybe that in between period, maybe the motorcycle accident to the return. I would guess that was a, a key point of, of entry for many people. And then for me, as you both know, uh, I'm a tremendous fan of the band Fugazi. And when people say, well, what's your favorite time? Uh, you know, obviously the first releases are so key. And I'm like, well, actually, when I started to see them around uh, their album End Hits, uh, mm-hmm. that's when I felt really immersed. So sometime around 98, well, about 10 years into their existence, they say, 10 years? What are you talking about? You know, the Kill Taker, Repeater, those are the... I'm like, yeah, they're great. And, and they do speak to me. I love them as records, but I didn't get to immerse myself. So for Dylan, I started seeing him in the late nineties and he was a figure that had been in every Beatles book I read. My, the Beastie boys would sample him. He was in the culture. I would borrow greatest hits records from the library and I could recognize the greatness of those songs, but I didn't dig in until time out of mind. I got time out of mind from the University of Guelph school newspaper as a review copy. And I was like, what is, I know this guy put it on. I was like, what the hell is this? Oh my God. It just instantly spoke to me. And I don't know what that says about me as a 20 year old, 19 year old, whatever I was, but it just got to me. And then I went to the record store and I bought a used copy of John Wesley Harding. I'm like, Oh my God. What is this? Listen to this band. So then that, then I started to see him. So for me, it is, it is not just time out of mind era. For me but that is what the gateway to my Dylan fanaticism was was that confluence of events. So Mark, again, I apologize for being long-winded. to answer your question, it is that era, but I have a soft spot for John Wesley Harding. I have a soft spot for all sorts of things with him, but I would say time out amount onward is my entry point and so that to me is where I would want to start. That's where I'd want to dig in. That's why fragments, the, the recent bootleg series excited me so much. Uh, whereas some of my friends were like, yeah, that I know you like that one. Does it grab me? I don't know, get it. It grabs some of you guys. And uh, my friend said that to me. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, except I have a sentimental attachment to it. And I think it's great. So Mark, those are my responses. How did I fare?
0: Great. That was <laughs> the, the, the era that, that you would, Want to write about is is a very rich era in the archive, and it may be worthwhile to say that the archive begins around the notebook that Lucy Sant was was writing about nineteen sixty four Chimes of Freedom lyrics, but really it takes off in the mid sixties materials and it runs through twenty twelve with Tempest, which was the last album of uh, original material that. That Bob had done when the archive was sold. Right. So that's that's kind of the range and the the time out of mind that you know late nineties, early to mid two thousands are are really well represented for whatever reason. As we were parceling out the essays into the you know nine eras that uh, we chose that that we kind of discussed, fought over, chose. A lot from the mid-'80s. A lot of people wanted to write about the mid-'80s. And, and that was that was maybe surprising to us because you would think, you know, somebody would come in and go, gosh, I want to write about Like a Rolling Stone or Subterranean Homesick Blues or, or something like that. So it was just a I, – I think it was a period that, that people wanted to dig into and, and kind of reappraise. Huh. And I also think that, that some people wanted to uh, – Larry Sloman – you know, Under the Red Sky, Handy Dandy, like yeah. to, to try to reshape some of the narratives around yeah. some of the more maligned uh, albums.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a really fascinating take by Larry to to go after and get into and reappraise things like that. There's a reappraisal of Ronaldo and Clara. There there are, there, I just did this with the Budokan um, set where I was like, yeah, this is, Really malign, but as I dig into this version, I can appreciate it more. Um, by the way, I just want to correct myself. First time I saw Fugazi, Red Medicine Tour, nineteen ninety five. But and that <laughs> and uh, the record wait, show uh, yeah.
0: Bone, Bone Student Center, Normal, Illinois. When I was uh, at Illinois State University, fall of nineteen ninety three, and on the Kill Taker, and it was uh, maybe the most five dollars, most influential, impactful show uh, of my life to date.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to correct the record because I may have intimated that I didn't see them till 98, but that's, I'm just saying, a contemporary <laughs> experience with an artist. Do you guys, like, Parker, yeah. does that make sense that you would- Yeah, yeah, the, entirely. The, time, the entry point you had to immerse yourself, and there's something about seeing them live, too. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, yeah, totally. I, I had a similar, it's not the first time I've seen them, but I had a similar experience seeing Wilco, like, a month ago. Yeah. End of the tour, or their tour for this new record, And uh, I'd listened to it, but hadn't really gotten into it. And then seeing it live, I went back and listened. I was like, oh, you know, all the subtlety, all the nuance, you know, I could pick up on that much more and had a much different, you know, relationship to that record. So totally understand what you're, you know, how that works.
1: Yeah, it is. It's just a thing where situationally where you are, in an artist's trajectory is going to create a bond with you and that artist that some people won't, you know, uh, you guys have, that's man, Mark, that's so fascinating you. So you're saying the mid eighties was a frequent era that people wanted to learn about. And to me, I've said this to, I said it to Ray Paget recently, like that's kind of my biggest blind spot because of the sonic qualities of the records. It's not the songwriting. It's just something about it. It wasn't until this bootleg series uh springtime in new york that covers uh, 1980 to 1985 where i dug back in i'm like wait a minute these are incredible songs like these are incredible performances we just so... sorry mark are you pointing this out because you mentioned they're maligned it's not considered the most fruitful or popular era of dylan is that a safe thing to say
0: <laughs> uh, I, absolutely i think i think yeah and I I I don't know that that the folks writing about that era were doing it to be contrarian I it may be I'm trying to think of who it was and their approximate age and and uh you know Brownsville girl or um Infidels know, it in, in well Infidels yeah. yeah I don't know I it may have been in in you know entry point for for some of these folks as well. Uh, but it was a rich, yeah, time to, to mine in the archive. It's also a
2: really rich period like in the archive, which is why it's one of the long, like the publisher was like, did you realize that this is what, a, if not the largest chapter in the book, the largest chapter in the book is devoted to basically like the 80s, this sort of, you know, period of wanderings or experimentation or whatever you want to kind of, however you want to frame it. But I also think, yeah, it, it was driven somewhat by the materials that are there because there's just so much. Because you know, for an out al- like you saw in Springtime in New York, an album like Empire Burlesque is recorded over X number of sessions in two cities and these different studios with these different musicians, and only a small fraction of that is making the, the cut. So you yeah. have the ability to sort of zoom out and tell a larger story. And then also, probably there's a bit of like, yeah, I feel an attachment to the 60s and the 70s, because that is the Dylan that so many people think of. But, you know, maybe they felt like there was less, less new, you know, they didn't have an angle. They wanted to say something new and they, they didn't, you know, have something new to add to that. Well, but I also... This is the only other thing I can...
1: No, (laughs) that makes sense to me. But also Parker, like it is probably the only, like the early to... Mid to late eighties by it's one of the only periods in his career where Dylan has sort of admitted he didn't know what he was doing. Um, so (laughs) do you know what I mean by that? He sort of said, I'm, I was lost. I didn't know what to do. And that followed one of his boldest periods with the um, gospel era where he was so resolute in what he was believing. And I think that's what those of us who followed his career and his work, one of the things that resonates with us is his confidence, his boldness. So I wonder if people are like, huh, why was he so full of self-doubt? What was actually going on? Does that make sense to you, Parker? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a mysterious, like, how is this guy who's normally like really high level suddenly faltering? Like, Mark, do you feel like that is a part of the narrative of that chapter? Like the fact that so many people want to focus on this strange time, the strange probably probably the strangest time in his in his trajectory. I think that there's a
0: a parallel thing happening at at this very moment because it's it's within months of the release of well you know biograph comes
1: out oh right and, The overview yeah
0: and sort of for the first time people are getting a box set in the sort of CD era. Uh, compact disc era. Um, not CD, but um, <laughs> uh, of a lot of outtakes, unreleased material. That's a moment when, you know, as we know, MTV has sort of taken over the music industry, uh, the mainstream music industry, and it was a time when the compact disc had just become the format of record, no pun intended, and everybody from you know, the, the boomers were rebuying their entire uh, catalogs on compact disc. So Biograph was a really important, I think, moment for the kind of archival release market and then the bootleg series in 1991. So you have, you know, what we may think of as, as a period of time where Dylan is, is maybe f- trying to figure things out again, figure out where, where he's at leading to, I think, the late 90s, Time Out of Mind era, yeah. um, 97. So all of these old releases are coming out, the bootleg series coming out. He starts going back to the well with Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, and all these things are happening at once. Yeah. And that's a, a recurring narrative throughout the book is, is that moment of Pause and kind of reevaluation. It seems for for Dylan before these sort of creative explosions mm. that you know we've we've just witnessed another recently with Rough and Rowdy Ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And hmm. it's interesting to hear as much as I was earlier talking about the kind of perception of weakness. There's so much stuff in this book. Did I congratulate you guys on this book? Congratulations on this book. <laughs> I learned a lot from it. And there's just so much sort of information going by that I'm pro- I'm I'm down I've downloaded as much as I can but at one point there's a note that Dylan thinks of Shot of Love as his favorite album am I getting that correct like that's maybe his favorite record
2: Yeah and actually that in the initial draft that was kind of um like it's from an interview that he did somewhere and, and in the initial draft of the book it was actually expanded because his comments to the interviewer were drafted out in advance on a hotel stationery. And so he kind of has a longer sort of and slightly different explanation of, of that album. Um, and so we wanted to use that just for space considerations. We couldn't and it's like, but yeah, you know, he felt shot of love was like, you know, where he was at, at that moment.
1: Yeah. Um, I wonder if his mind has changed. Cause a part of me when I read that, he, he wasn't a we, I think by, we've learned from Chronicles and his other sort of interviews that, um, he does view this period as one of searching and, and uncertainty for him artistically. So all, part of me was like, maybe he's overcompensating or something. Like maybe he's trying to, you know, <laughs> create some hype about something, uh, for his own benefit. Um but that's just pure speculation on my part. It's anyway, it's really fascinating. I want to take us back to my time with you uh in Tulsa for a moment. And here's where I I think I earlier alluded to some regret. You guys did a thing for me which I appreciated, which was you brought me up to a room and you said, "Hey, look, notebooks, sheets of paper." And it, and if I I, and what do you remember? What you showed me, uh, Mark? Do you remember what uh, kind of stuff you were, you had shown me? I know you you were bringing lots of people through, but
2: Parker, do you do you happen to? I mean, we yeah we had some things that we were showing. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of the uh, yeah because uh, I remember we finished and you said, "Oh, we've got to put all of those in the book." So. Uh, it's um it wait was a who lot said, of the... did
1: i say that who said that no 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 mark <laughs> oh Mark. Oh, sorry okay yeah no I didn't know was... about, no i didn't know about the book sorry yeah i'm not involved yeah. in the book i wish i was involved in the book but i'm not involved in the book I, the it's a one. beautiful book yeah maybe the next <laughs> one sorry go ahead
2: <laughs> um it was uh it was a lot of the bring it all back home highway 61 stuff um so like ballad of a thin man bob dylan's 115th dream uh
1: there was Dignity yeah. as well. There was like 20 or 30 yeah. pages of Dignity or something.
2: Dignity. It was the um, late 1960s little notebook with the lyrics to You Belong to Me and some yeah. of the John Wesley Harding drafts, I believe. I'm trying to think what
1: else. Well, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Where, where I was getting no, at, but- I feel like I didn't. I think I was a bit stunned. Do you have any recollection of my like reaction to this? Because I feel like I was just like, what? What do I? What is this? I, I don't remember exactly, but I feel like I didn't appreciate it enough because I was so stunned. But do you have any recall of how I was reacting to what I was seeing?
2: Not you in particular, but okay. that was people's general, you know, reaction was like, "That's the thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> as much as the center is not about like fetishizing the object, that's the draft for subterranean homesick blues or one of the two, right? Like, that's it. You know,
1: that's and, and- that's stunning and not everyone gets to sort of see and touch these things right like the people in the that you brought down to Tulsa before the the center opened they felt i don't want to say they felt special but they realized no yeah let's just go that route they realized this was rarefied air and tangible object stuff they were exposed to right
0: yeah i i think so i it's funny because there have been so many moments because i've had to drag the stuff out on so many occasions for, for, a, you know, a lot of different people. I, I, uh, we had a very, and we still do a very strict, no photography policy around any of the, the Dylan manuscripts that, uh, or the materials. And I remember the mayor of Tulsa, I had just moved there. I didn't know him from, you know, Adam and sure he wanted to take a photo with, uh, Bruce Langhorne's tambourine. And I told him no. Um, and it was maybe the most unintentionally punk rock I've ever been in my life, um, uh, telling the mayor of the city I live in that he can't take a photo with a tambourine. But um, I often, you know, there there are moments where I'll be putting the manuscripts out, and I'll, I'll I'll suddenly have that realization again that that I'm not just sort of you know that what I'm holding in my hands is you know the draft for subterranean homesick blues or you know any any number of these things these these really incredible pieces and parker mentioned it you know we're not a mall restaurant we're not you know guitars on walls or you know like it's not i mean wall power as as some folks refer to it is is important but it is not the only thing the the context around the objects and
2: and sort of telling maybe a bigger story. Well, yeah. I was just going to say Mark, yeah, that that I think it's the context particularly because of the type of artist that Dylan is, right? Like I'm sure we told you as we did the spiel for you the Dog and Pony Show, you know, like as we did for everyone and as we've tried to, you know, impart in the book which is that, you know, Dylan writes all this stuff to get like a a draft, right, of a song. That then he says, OK, this is a song that I can, you know, perform live, take into a studio, most likely. And in there, as well, many of us who, you know, have followed the bootleg series, we see that it can go through many twists and turns. Sometimes, you know, it goes through many twists and turns and it hits the cutting room floor like Lion Willie McTell or Dignity. And, you know, we only get to see what, you know, it could have been you know, or where it was at all these years later. And then once there's the version on the album, that version, you know, is soon going to find, you know, if it ends up on the live stage, whether immediately after 40 years down the line, it's going to, you know, take on sort of new dimensions. And so I think that leads, that's like a, easy way to say like the object is important right like like Mm -hmm. like lee ronaldo's essay that that starts off the book like the object is important we can't have the song without really this piece of paper that has all the words to it but that you know it doesn't end there that you know it dylan's you know words you know exist in song yeah as he sort of said in the nobel lecture right Um, Well, I can't recall
1: who exactly said this. Maybe it was, it might've been Mike Campbell or someone from Tom Petty's band. And forgive me if this is wrong. Maybe one of you can correct me. But one of them talks about how in working um, with Dylan, they discovered that he will, even if a song ends up with six verses, he'll write 20 and he'll just keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And then he'll, he'll figure out in the studio... Uh, which ones make the most sense? This is just an insight I wasn't totally aware of that he would except that when you brought me into that room and showed me how many pages of dignity is it? I, I've been telling people it's like 20 30 pages is it am I crazy? What? I
0: think it's like 43 maybe yeah. it's it's somewhere around that. right yeah right
1: so and this is a yeah so this is a very bizarre sort of situation. There's a guy who's known for uh, his precision. But he's also a very private guy, and what your archive does and what this book does and what's been happening with the bootleg series is the privacy is gone. The process is revealed. The flaws, if you will, the the practice is revealed. Mark, what do you make of that? What do you make of the fact that um, I do think he's mysterious, enigmatic, but he's also been very, in in this work that you guys are doing in the bootleg series, which I view as both a A way of creating or dispelling maybe some mystery for hardcore fans. It also shows them to be human. Like, I find like all of this is a very humanizing thing to allow your work to, you know, to have an archive like this. And, like, look, I I didn't know what I was doing really on some level. I wrote 20, 30, 45 pages of a song that didn't make it. Can you explain that sort of tension between him being enigmatic and him being completely open? Uh, with the work yeah. you guys are doing,
0: yeah. Well, I, I, I can't speak for humans, but I, I can speak for Bob. I think I can't speak for Bob either. But <laughs> I, one of the just recently last weekend, I, I, one of the things in our book is the most multiplicity of voices that we try to bring to it. You know, essayists certainly quotations throughout the book, our own voices, which we try to be pretty neutral with. But uh, there are a lot of outtakes of interviews from No Direction Home in particular yeah. that are part of the archive, and I, I was I was listening to some of those interviews, and Bob said he was talking about writing, and and in Desolation Row in particular, and and he he basically said once I got that form down, I could just write and write and write and write and write. It's it's effortless at that point, and and I think that's that's a really important point that once he's locked into that, you know, uh, he's, he's sort of meditated his way into a particular form. He can write and write and write and write. I mean, it's just, it just, you know, it just, just comes out. I'm working on an exhibit right now, 61 to 64. And I've been focusing on some of the early ballads, Death of Emmett Till in particular. And, and it's, it's really interesting for a a song that early on to, to look at it and go, he's close to getting the ballad form down, but he hasn't gotten it yet. Mm -hmm. And, and just in a year or two, like it's, it's locked in, he's nailed it down and, and it's, it's a, it's really, really incredible watching that trajectory for him.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Parker, one of the uh, bits from the book that resonated with me is an exchange that I think Allen Ginsberg has with, Sorry, guys. I didn't make any notes. Your book's too dense. I just thought I'd go by my memory. (laughs) I apologize. But Alan Ginsberg and and someone are having a discussion about Dylan's songs. Robert Creeley. Was it Creeley? I think it's Creeley, yeah. Do you know what I'm going to talk about? I was going to mention the fact that Ginsberg suggests that every song Dylan writes is actually autobiographical. Um, and I don't remember who who paraphrases. Oh, now you're going to pull out the book like it's a textbook. Look at you! This is great. Yeah, 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 I, I can't gotta, recall off the top
2: if I got to give you a good answer. No, <laughs> I, well, what I'm
1: what I'm getting at is, does that, if Ginsburg is correct, if that's true, does that give you any particular perspective on everything you're encountering in this archive? Like, yes, we know this is coming from this guy, but if the notion that Maybe it's Sloman talking to Ginsburg actually about Handy Dandy, which Sloman... That sounds... Yeah, Larry's Larry yeah. argues in that song that, you know, as much as that album might be maligned or the, the songs are thought to be shoddy in terms of their craft, maybe we need to take a second look at what Dylan was actually saying on those records, right? So for him, he argues Handy Dandy is probably him. It's probably that character, Handy Dandy, is Dylan. Um. Anyway, sorry, if if Ginsburg's assertion is correct, that almost everything is autobiographical. Does that give you pause as you ponder and hold these things in your hands and think about um, the material that this guy who is shrouded in mystery is actually telling us about himself every time? Has that occurred to you?
2: I'm gonna I'm gonna bracket my answer first to say the Robert Creeley thing is they're talking about what D- uh, Dylan's best line is. Oh. And Dylan, uh, at the time, offers that it's uh, to live outside the law, you
1: must be honest. To live outside the law, you uh, must be so, honest. So, yes. just so we yes. get that on the record. Uh, <laughs> I saw Tugazi uh, first time, 1995. <laughs> Alan Ginsberg was talking to Robert Creeley, but yeah, uh, yeah, we're, we're yeah.
2: just... This is, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think it's like a... What we found in the book is that so often... Uh, there are a couple dimensions. I'll, first, I'll say that, like, when we're talking about, like, you know writing 25 verses for a a six verse song it's like that is something that you know whether it is a masterwork or what we consider a masterwork right like dignity or something like that or whether it is you know like there are three surviving drafts of wiggle wiggle which you know on many critics lists ranks pretty low Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but you know I think that just shows the seriousness to which Dylan, you know, goes into everything. And something you hear in the Bootleg series, like, how many other artists like, just could release their rehearsals and they're singing as if they're on stage for you know, thousands of people. It's like, he plays for keeps and you don't go into, you know, making an album saying, this is going to be my minor work, right? No, No, it's like, I'm making the next you know, thing, and and Dylan certainly has a, a strange relationship or an unorthodox relationship with maybe the recording, the act of recording or the recording studio. Because like, I think, you know, as we've seen with his touring over the past 30, whatever years, you know, that's, that's the arena for him that, that things really seem to come alive. But one thing we found in, in, in answering your actual question was that so often Dylan has sort of told us, the truth, you know, mm-hmm. as fans, we choose to create a lot of mystery around some things that he's been pretty upfront about, mostly because sometimes he hasn't been so upfront about other things. Right. Like from the moment of arriving in New York City with sort of this backstory mm-hmm. that's, you know, largely, you know, fact and fiction and and playing fast and loose. But, um, you know, so often Yeah, there is a hint of whether it's autobiography or sort of like truth telling or or whatever it is, you know, there it is. That's why I think, you know, yeah, like even just things in the book where he's the music hairs right? Speech where he's like, if you sang key to the highway as much as me, you could write Highway 61, right? Like Mm revisit it, right? Like, and that's why we use that quote. It's like he's told you this is this is the equivalency. But yeah, I think that. I mean, what that means when we're ho- holding things in our hands, I try not to read too much into it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was sort of Mark and my goal as editors of the book was to, and to let other voices who are more knowledgeable or to kind of like present our role as like sort of editors archivists or to like present all the evidence and let people sort of make of it what they will.
1: It's uh, it's funny uh, to hear anyone talk about Bob Dylan in in this sort of scholarly realm that we're that we're borderline on and say, I try not to read too much into it. <laughs> that seems to be the I whole mean, thing with, I mean, with us, isn't it?
2: That is, and that's part of, like, the fun of being a fan, right? Yeah. Um, but it felt like uh, I didn't want to... The point of the book was not for me and Mark to, like, take our opinions about these things and yeah. make them sort of the official opinion. Like, I'd much rather, like we did in Newport... Um, you know, like, just present, like, here's all the interviews from No Direction Home. Here's, rather than Mark and I, who were not, a spe- you know, we were not born when this all took place. Uh. You know, here's people who are actually there talking about it, like 10 of them, and weaving that together. And like, you know, what you get is something that is an account of Dylan going electric at, quote unquote, at Newport, that is like, all the events don't quite like all the opinions don't quite line up, but they don't not line up either. And like, you can kind of start to see, you know, what that day might've been like through, through it. So, well,
1: that's in pondering this fellow and the events and thing like in his life and the things he's done. I don't think it's um, being melodramatic to say that there's a conspiratorial tone to the way people process everything. And I think as things have gotten released via the bootleg series or No Direction Home or the DVD release of that festival film by uh uh Marie Lerner, is that correct? Am I saying yeah, yeah. Those are all like, for me anyway, uh encountering those things, the footage at Newport, every few years something is released, we're like, oh, they have it. Like someone has this. This thing we've heard about, or or I just have never seen this before or heard this before. I can't think of any other artist, Mark, where the fan base is sort of accustomed to wanting and clamoring for things that suddenly appear on the internet or in the archive now. That's a weird thing. I I can't think of anyone else. So I have a twofold question for you, Mark. I just wanted to say that because it's just been on my mind. Like Just this constant, every few years, a revelatory thing comes out with this guy. But my question for you, Mark, is twofold. One... Are you ever not astonished by what you encounter in the archive? Um, whether someone's asked you to pull something up or whatever, like does it ever, is, does the novelty of like, holy shit, ever leave you? And, and secondly, was there anything in these essays that people wrote, these wonderful essays that surprised you, gave you insight? Does anything in particular come to mind? Can you speak to those two? I'm asking you about your general sense of astonishment <laughs> when it comes to some of the materials that you live with at the center and also uh from the perspective of those who uh, got to access them. Can you speak to those things?
0: Yeah, there's a tension there. Do you remember when everybody was clamoring to hear Albini's recording of in, in on the Killtaker?
1: Yeah, by Fugazi, yes, yes.
0: Yes. So producer uh, I I uh let me engineer cut it cut cut that out of the recording <laughs> imagine i never said that it never came out of my mouth uh recording engineer Steve Albini recorded uh fugazi's in on the kill taker and i'm looking behind you at your fugazi and shellac poster and, hey, in, and chicago. in chicago in yes, chicago in 1998 remembering those, those yeah. shows together yeah. as being the most exciting monumental incredible a uh, series of shows, The Makeup, Blonde Redhead, like like all of this stuff. Yeah. And it never was released. And I wanted to hear that record so badly. And I finally did, well past its sort of cultural moments. And I was kind of like, Bleh. it's cool. Yeah, I just, see just... why they made the decision they did.
1: Yeah, so to clarify for those who aren't familiar with this story, uh, Fugazi uncharacteristically sought to record a record uh, with, uh, well, I mean, they've been making records with other people before, but they went down to see Steve Albini in Chicago, and based on a conversation that Ian McKay and Steve had on, and, and I had on this show, uh, it was revealed as, the, the the session failed, basically. It was deemed a failure. Things didn't sound right. And by Steve's admission, they were just having too much fun. He was having too much fun socially and didn't concentrate on his work. The band subsequently re-recorded the album, uh, with a different uh, group of people, uh, engineer and producer. And that's the one that eventually came out. So I just want to clarify that what Mark was clamoring for was ostensibly a demo recording. Well, it wasn't intended to be, but it became known as like the Albini demos. Um, sorry, Mark, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to no, contextualize. No, and, and yeah.
0: how does that relate to Bob Dylan? For me, that that was something that I would go to any lengths to, to hear that recording. I, I Yes. Um, I don't have that same relationship, and and it's it's an interesting position to, to be in because I know a lot of people. I mean, Dylan is the most bootlegged artist I think in popular music history. That's what uh, is um, that's
1: mentioned in the book several times that whatever the Recording Academy or whatever says that he's the most bootlegged. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and 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 Parker and I know the folks who do the armpit recordings. Like we we have we have. Interacted with them, we we you know the unseemly characters who are are tapers. are very close friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, tapers um, who have become sort of the documentarians of of a moment, a, a really important set of of documentarians. Um, in fact, in the Bob Dylan Center, we have uh, because of one of these tapers, the last performance that Mike Bloomfield uh, ever did with Bob Dylan shortly before his his death, and it's it's wonderful. Yeah. To get to your question about uh, every so often more things come out, at some point that's finite. At some point, you know, the materials that exist are, are, are finite yeah. and, and there are just things that, you know, weren't recorded, but, but there's still a lot there. But it's a living artist who has a whole team around him who, you know, are releasing things that are deemed worthy uh, by that artist but I think people want everything. People just want everything. Every second of every recording and I understand that impulse. Um But it's over but it's overwhelming.
1: You- like you cited a Fugazi artifact that was clamored for, but it's ostensibly one thing.
0: Yeah. With, yes.
2: with, yeah, yeah, with yeah. Dylan,
1: it's just such an avalanche and I myself can't keep up with all of it. Like yeah, I, I know, was just so- gonna say the
2: only artist that I know like and and certainly not this way anymore, but the only well, Maybe a little. Maybe there's a, an aging population that's like this. I wish there were more. But Charlie Parker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People like wanted to hear every note he played, right? Every note, whether he was, you know, out of his, you know, out of his mind on drugs or, or you know, playing the best you could play. But that's the only other artist that I can ima- you know, really think of where people really wanted to hear every single note. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Parker. You know, uh, very finite. He dies, you know, you know, there's like really like 10, a little more. I guess there's a little, whatever. It, there's a finite amount of material 15, 20 years. I imagine, but, uh, I imagine
1: people could make arguments about Miles Davis or Frank Zappa along the same lines, like people like that, where they have this ardent fan base and the artist was prolific and temperamental and ingenious, right? Like, so there's like, with Dylan and what you guys have done with the archive and and with all the materials that have been gathered with the bootleg series, and as I recall in terms of the intent of the center itself, uh, which was to inspire people to try things, to to tap into their imaginations and not be afraid of where that takes them, this is an artist, in Dylan's case in particular, where the process does matter to us. And I think, Parker, were you saying earlier that Here's a guy where he's going through a a seemingly just an informal warm up in the studio, but he's singing like it's the it's he's going to that's his last performance ever. Like his process oriented, you know, jotting things down in his notebook or whatever. It all has such great intention and it seems so purposeful that it does have merit. It's not a lark. I, I'm putting a lot of words in your mouth, but is does that resonate with you, Parker?
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, I think that that's exactly it, right? Yeah. Like, look at the, the rehearsals specifically that are on, um, you know, Trouble No More, Bootleg like Thirteen, or or in Springtime in New York. Like, that's just him in the rehearsal studio, and you know, he is take after take, you know, rehearsing the band, but singing. You know, he'll go off mic you know, those are like the, some of like the street legal stuff, like where he's, you know, those, there's a mic there. He doesn't want this kind of, he knows that it could get, he, at a certain point he knows that stuff gets out there. Right. Yeah, And that people are, you know, going to try and bootleg stuff. So you can tell, you know, like, I don't want this. I'm now off mic and I'm singing off mic and you know, you're not gonna be able to hear it, but there is a great intentionality to it can seem like that until you see the scope of everything right like if you go into the archive and you ask to see the stuff for a shot of or let's choose a different album so that because we talked about that period a lot mm-hmm. uh, let's say uh I don't know
1: you know what uh, because you're bringing uh, this, new morning well that's we could do that yep. i I actually want to get to tempest for a second or, or that era because um, Mark earlier suggested that the initial archive, is basically the beginning to Tempest and then subsequent. Right. Anyway, what I have found and what we have found is that uh, I think, I don't know if it's modern times onward or there just seems to be less extraneous reject stuff in the last couple of days, de- about the last decade and a half, let's say. Mark, is that true? Like, is there anything that you've come across from the latter, when I say latter, I mean <laughs> anything since Love and Theft. Like, some of that's been captured on uh, Telltale Signs and, uh, and 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 whatnot, but um, like the sort of uh, other, other recordings, but is it starting to slow down? Are the albums basically everything? That's my read on it. Sorry, Mark. Is that your read on it too? Is there extra stuff that we haven't heard?
2: Parker was gonna... Yeah, I'll yeah. just, because it, it finishes my previous thought, which is that well, sometimes yes, there I mean there are outtakes that from not many, but there are some outtakes. The biggest thing I was gonna say is that like the archive didn't like if you asked to pull the box from Tempest, let's say yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? you're gonna get all the different songs, you're gonna you get the the notepads, but that's just what could be identified as those songs, right? Like if you there are several I don't know how many boxes it is, Mark, of stuff that like we don't, you know, we know it's a general time frame ish because of the handwriting but we don't know where or what or when you know this material was created it's just like a yeah you know yeah. a sea of stuff and and every for the book we identify like a whole lot because if you're going through it with that level of detail and and researchers go through and they can pick things out and, and little by little it's sort of you know getting a little bit less that pile yes but but like that sort of dispels that idea of intentionality that like everything is deliberate, right? I mean, it's very clear though that whenever the moment strikes, Dylan is finding a, a pen or yeah. a typewriter or whatever and he's going at it, right? Yeah. Like, because you can find stuff on the back of business cards. You can find stuff on the back of matchbooks. You can find stuff, you know, on all kinds of little scraps of paper. Um, And so it is like, you know, we've been saying like Dylan follows his muse wherever it goes. It's like, there is that that desire, but it's not necessarily as intentional in sort of a process like the process can sort of take you know different
1: yeah sometimes different shapes. sometimes it's lightning in the bottle and the song comes out fully formed. other times it takes 30 verses before he picks the five or six. I don't I'm not saying there's a hard and yeah. fast rule, but I wonder if that impulse to be as prolific as possible for a batch of songs is starting to, uh, lesson. That's all I was trying to get at. Like, I don't get the yeah. sense he's recording f- 20 songs for Tempest.
0: I uh, I am curious about w- what materials there might be for the, the songs, you know, lyric drafts and, and the like for, for rough and rowdy ways. Yeah. I want to say, though, that it's a very odd existence, and I was just thinking about this, that I can't think of another artist that People need to know so much about. Like, I need to, I need to hear every outtake. I I'm disappointed in the book because I'm I didn't get every lyric draft of you know whatever song, or I've seen this photograph before. Uh, I need something different. I need something new. And it's not that's not abating. Like that that uh, that desire to know Dylan is. It's not relegated to people who are aging out of existence and here's my point i've got a weird job i mean it's it's (laughs) such a i uh, but um i i don't understand why people aren't sending me more checks in the mail like like I, (laughs) i i but but here's the thing like dated back to the very the earliest years of his career but certainly when you know great white wonder uh uh people digging through his garbage people you know saying he's the prophet, the messiah, the voice of a generation, and all of that sort of thing. And then it is it is the bootleg series. It's the dance of the seven veils. It's the the providing the people with almost what they want, but not everything. And it's that, that interplay between the, those two things that I think has sustained that kind of, you know, that desire.
1: Well, and I think the desire is steeped in disbelief. I can't believe how great this guy is. There must be more to it. There must be more to this guy, and I don't quite understand. I know that fandom is an interesting thing, and everyone's got their own way of, of processing an artist, but those of us who follow Dylan, I think, can't believe it. Uh, I can't believe we're walking among this guy, that he's around, that this is the kind of work. So I think that is part of why the, the disbelief creates fervor. I want to believe. I believe in him, but I can't believe it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and it's it's outside of normal fandom. I mean, yes. yes. There, you know, you could go back and point to any number of popular boy bands going back to, you know, the '80s or beyond that, um, where there is such a fervent fan base. But that's that's different than artistry and and yeah, and depth of productivity and even the use of the word genius i don't know it's, it's
1: i don't think though i'm sure there are people who would disagree with me but i don't think our desire to get close to dylan and his work is is based on carnality as much as <laughs> or like like uh you know visceral whatever feelings like it's it is and i'm not trying to sound snobby or whatever but it's like an intellectual emotional hybrid of a connection that's very hard to articulate. And it's not always, it's gritty too. It's not like you put on, I love the Beatles, for example. And Mm -hmm. the feeling you get from early to mid 60s Beatles is definitely a pleasant one. It's like a, a warmth. And then as they got grittier, you're like, this still is amazing, but it's making me feel differently than it used to. Whereas if I think on Dylan, it's always been truth and harsh. Reality with romance and hope. Sorry, guys. Now I'm just talking about Dylan. I'm mindful of the time, and I I don't want to uh, push us too much further. And it's an interesting uh, point because I want to get into finality, the finality that I feel we're all going through with Bob right now. Because you guys made a book. He's alive. There's more stuff that's going to come at some point, as we've alluded to. But you created this book. It's frozen now. And it takes us from the beginning of his life to Rough and Rowdy Ways and a photo shoot in 2023 where he looks fucking badass as hell. <laughs> and uh so there's that part of it. I got to, as you may know, I got to attend three Rough and Rowdy Ways shows. And after the third one, I wrote about this. A friend and I had a dialogue Friends and I were having a dialogue and my friend Mick sort of was like, have you actually looked at the set list and thought about it more? And we were like, it's a weird set list kind of, isn't it? Like it's a lot of rough and rowdy ways. He's like, if you actually look at it, I think he's singing to us. I think he's singing songs of gratitude to us, his audience, and songs of gratitude to his muses. And he's changing lyrics to songs and he's sort of talking about leaving. He's sort of talking about saying goodbye and thank you at the same time and I'm 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 I know we don't have the set list in front of us gentlemen but I just want to say when my friend said this and I studied it I'm like I think there's something to this so what I want to get at and it's it's an emotional uh, subject but do you have a sense in your own mind beyond the age beyond the fact that he's in his early 80s right now and you know, at some point he will stop doing stuff. Did you write this book and put this book out now, thinking we're close? We're close to the end of Mark. No, not at all. Okay, you're shaking your head.
0: No, no, that I and 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 I'll 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 let Parker speak to it. I, we um <laughs> the book started in 2017, and 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 I think we had all hoped that it it might be done for the was it 20 uh, initial 2021 opening of the Bob Dylan center. I mean, everything just got pushed. Right. Um, we always knew that there would be pieces unwritten of, of the story, uh, if we were to publish now, but there was plenty
2: there. Okay. Yeah. And that was why, I mean, the book ends with the, with the, the spring tour in Japan, you know, earlier this year, because that was literally as we were going to press that tour ended I think he was maybe in the middle of the next tour, but it felt like we can't, you know, jump, you know, leave you midway through. Maybe we should have. And it would have given the sense that this is an ongoing thing. But that was, you know, there. Yeah, it was sort of just the circumstances of how the book came to be that it, you know, it's not supposed to be the final word. And
1: I think. But do you see where I'm coming from a little bit? Just that the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour, this is all part of the clamoring and the obsession. It was pointed out in the last few months, like, wait a minute, this tour has an end date. It says 2021 to 2024. And then as you process the set list, you're like, he's kind of going through his life and singing to his muses and singing to us. Do you see where I'm coming from a little bit, Parker? Like, there is this... Do you have this feeling at all that he's he's starting to wind down? Not, Not really, no.
2: Hmm. <laughs> he feels... You know, eh. not to say that that's not, like, I think that's a totally valid sort of yeah. interpretation. You know, eventually that will happen, but I I guess given the track record of the last 60 years, I just, <laughs> like, I, I, ha- I have no expectations, right? Yeah. Um, okay. That's just sort of, yeah, where I'm at.
0: Yeah. The other thing, Dylan doesn't like the term never in new tour yada yada we know about that yeah, and, and he wrote the funny notes about you know well each of these tours could have been you know uh, <laughs> a year long given you know various titles yeah, and funny titles that in the book and yeah and this uh maybe sort of feels i mean a three-year tour with with one name to me it i mean he tends to not do the same thing over and over and over again for too long. So, I mean, maybe that is a a perfectly acceptable time for him to be touring rough and rowdy ways. I think if you
1: ponder, sorry guys, I'm not going to let this go because I I have an emotional (laughs) connection to this guy. But even as you ponder what he's singing about on the album, rough and rowdy ways, it's a lot of like reflecting upon who I contain multitudes. You know, I ain't no false. If you listen to false prophet, like, I'm the last of the best you can bury the rest like he's something's going on and maybe we'll never know and maybe things will just sort of um things are going to occur as they occur. I'm just saying reading your book was a very emotional experience for me because I'm having a very emotional time with this guy I I love deeply and whose music I love deeply and having attended those shows and feeling like something was up With this set list, like, why did he pick these songs? Why is he, why has he changed lyrics to certain songs the way he has? Like, what do these new lyrics mean? Um, even the cover songs that he has chosen that I've heard anyway seem to speak to the passage of time and things moving on and things like that. So didn't mean to put you on the spot, but this is a really, it's a, it's a historical document about a contemporary figure. Who I think has always been telling us things, and um, I'm just trying to listen more to what he's saying <laughs> as opposed to projecting what I think he's saying, which we all tend to do. Just like, here's what he's saying. Right. Here's that's, why the mo-, you know what I'm that's getting part at
2: of it? the that's part of the like fandom of Bob Dylan, right? Yeah. In a way, uh, with somebody, we jokingly said that you know if the that we should call this you know. Mixy up the medicine, Volume One, and you know the style of Chronicles, <laughs> Volume yeah. One, or the complete yeah. album collection, Volume One, or so. I guess, like in my head, maybe that's way I see Rough and Rowdy Ways toward twenty twenty one to twenty twenty four is like you know Volume One kind of uh, thing. Yeah. But uh, certainly the preoccupation with the uh, yeah, like you know the Rough and Rowdy Ways, like is very elegaic and like you know speaks to that and and and. You know, but it it also reflects in some of the, at least musically, the timelessness, like those, you know, Great American Songbook, you know, songs that he chose to interpret.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's 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 there's it's no a, way to definitively say either way. I just am seeking some like minded people's opinions. <laughs> uh, and I, I know you.
0: Vish, I appreciate you talking about Bob Dylan and and your feelings about this because i like you as a person and and it it uh it it's just it's really i don't know does does that make sense like it was really important what you what what you were just saying important to me personally
1: i appreciate that you like me as a person that's all i'm picking uh, up on so far that's nice uh, i like you too you um, seem like a nice guy i like your cat
0: uh, (laughs) the only way i can keep him quiet is uh, yeah yeah no no occasional scratches but parker (laughs) parker uh, had the good fortune of of traveling back to Brooklyn to see Bob on this tour. I wasn't it, right. It, well, I, I, I mean, I'm already regretting it for the rest of my life, but, but Parker, what was your sense of the gig?
2: Yeah, I, I didn't have the same sort of emo- like, um, it didn't strike me in the same way that it, it struck fish, but Visha also saw three shows, right? So, I, saw like, three, I, was, I saw three
1: shows I, that are pretty much the exact same set. I just... Right. I'm I was trying out.
2: to process just the one, right? Like, yeah. I was just trying to take in... I hadn't seen... Uh, it was, like, a fairly long period other than the Panda, uh, you know, of yeah. not seeing... It was the first time I was seeing a lot of that rough and rowdy ways material reworked, um, rearranged from the, you know, from the way it was in 2021. And, yeah, so I think, you know, some of that was just me trying to, like, take in that first pass and, and maybe with, you know, some re-listening, some of those resonances would strike me a little bit more.
1: I think, uh, singing, I made up my mind to give myself to you. Like what's the, uh, sorry, I'm going to paraphrase this. I give myself to you. I am from Salt Lake city to Birmingham, uh, from East LA to San Antonio. I don't want to live my life alone. How is that not about being on the road? and touring, and being with your audience who love you. To be alone with you has changed. I'll be your baby tonight. All So many songs in the set are about singing songs, are about writing songs, about what it's been like to do that. Um, I'm going to cry in a moment. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm putting put, keeping this myself This is a to- safe space. I'm keeping myself together. There's just so much that I, like a Dylan Knucklehead have now read into about why are these songs the ones he's chosen? What is watching the river flow? How can a, a set begin with what's the matter with me? I ain't got much to say at this point, you know, like in that this point, and then spend an hour and a half with a guy who has so much to say, but is maybe saying, I don't have that much more to say. Like, that's where I'm coming from. I've said a lot. I've done a lot. Mother of muses sing to me, like thanking his muses, I think with some sense of, I've done it, whatever I was looking for. What does Reuben Hurricane Carter say in your book? Uh, his paraphrase is paraphrased the saying numerous times. Have you found it, Bob? Have right, you found right. it? I think he's starting to tell us he found it. And that's where I'm coming from. And that is swimming around in how I read your book recently. I've read your book subsequent to these shows. As you both know, it took a weird journey to get this book to my house in Edmonton. So I didn't have a chance to dig in. And now that I have, I'm just it's an emotional swirl for me and I and everyone who wrote an essay I relate to. Uh I will say like every essay speaks to me as people touch and feel this guy's actual writing and his work and his thoughts. So sorry to be all emo, but I'm just saying I am trying to look at this with my eyes wide open about what this guy is telling us with the songs he... Of all the songs he could pick to play on this tour and play them consistently every night, I don't think I'm being a lunatic and saying there's something to that, what he's chosen and why it's pretty much static and why everyone's getting kind of equal treatment in every city except for a few covers and very minor modifications. But I'm telling you guys... He's singing with great gratitude. And does that fact that Mother of Muses is usually, it was for a while, surrounded by a cover song, by Leonard Cohen, by the Grateful Dead, by whomever. That old black magic is one of those cover songs. There's some real strategic, I think, thoughtfulness going on and how he's talking. Sorry, guys, I can't. I'm, I can't stop talking about this now. No, no. I mean, look. The I think <laughs> as we've been talking about this entire time, Dylan's not one to fake it,
2: right? He's yeah. not gonna. So I think that, like, yeah, like I think that's a yeah. It's like that's a very real thing you're feeling. He's not gonna go out and like do the same set list night after night if it's not working. He has to connect. He has to connect yeah. with that material and over to put it over. And so, like, you know, everything you're hearing in it.
1: He's real. Well, also, reading Ray Paget's book, uh, Pledging My Time, when it gets to the Rough and Rowdy Way stuff, which is, as, as we're speaking, this is Bob Dylan's most recent album. Almost everyone involved in the album that Ray is able to talk to says, more or less, yeah, he called me out of the blue. I haven't worked with him in 15, 20, 30 years. He called me in to just play a little piano on something. He called me in to contribute to something, and I haven't talked to him. That to me is a guy doing some stock taking and being a little sentiment, at least a little sentimental. I'm going to call someone I haven't worked with since 1978. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out a year. Forgive me if that's inaccurate, but I'm telling you. No, Alan Pasqua. Yeah. yeah. Alan Pasqua. So I, I, what I'm telling you, and he gets him to play on the, on the Nobel Prize Nobel. Uh, uh, speech, uh, improvised piano. I think he's thinking about what he's done and who he's worked with and who's meant something to the fucking Tom Petty and the heartbreakers farm aid thing. Like there's a, that. So for those who don't know this year, Dylan shows up at farm aid unannounced with Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. Who does he play with at the first time he ever played farm aid in like 1985, Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. I'm telling you, there's like a thing. Sorry. I sound like a lunatic now. Mark's probably regretting that he said he liked me because I sound so deranged. <laughs> but I'm telling you, there's a real method to this that I think we're, we should be paying attention to. He's in a zone where he's trying to, uh, pay tribute to us, the people that have inspired him musically, the songwriters he loves, like all the name checks on rough and rowdy ways. Those are all foundational people and and events for him. And I think he's thinking about that as he contemplates that being maybe his last big artistic statement and this tour being his last big tour. So, Mark, I don't mean to fill you with more regret for not going to Brooklyn, but I want to tell you your book is part of a, this book going from whatever point A in Bob Dylan's life is to whatever his point Z is or z as you say in america i think it's an emotional and hefty tome and i want to thank you for it and i hope what i'm saying mark gives you some pause uh as to where dylan might be and what you've done and what you're doing to um contribute to his legacy does that make any sense
0: well thank you i will take it i i was immediate yeah um (laughs) Uh, I, yeah, I immediately regretted what I said earlier and, um, I was reminded of, uh, wait about liking uh, me. I'm sorry. I uh, didn't mean to, <laughs> th- yes. Um, uh, there, there was, a yeah, yeah. I, I was a big Beatles and John Lennon fan growing up and, and there was a guy who had jumped the fence at Tittenhurst and, oh, yeah, and that guy. Uh, came up yeah. to him and was talking about how it, but it all fits, man. It was, it, yeah. it all fits. And I was just having one of the, those moments. Um, I'm sorry, can uh, you
1: guys hear me okay? Where, Is the crinkling of my tinfoil hat getting onto the mic too loud? I. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, of course it fits. Everything fits. Uh, if you're tripping off on some trip, everything fits. Um, yeah. I am sure you were right. I'm sure I don't
1: want right. to be right. I, I, it's, just, it's a sad thing to be right about, but it hit me... Both during that last show at Massey Hall that I got to see in Toronto and in the subsequent conversation with, again, my friends Mick and Steve, uh, it crystallized like, oh, I haven't I haven't had a second to really think about what this, these shows mean to me. I've just been letting them come to me in Rochester, New York, just sitting there, seeing a guy I've seen so many times and just feeling grateful that I get to. And that happened in the first night in Toronto, too. But by the third night, because it was my last tickets for this tour that I had, and I don't know as we're speaking, I don't know what's happening, if there's going to be more or what. Yeah. You can't help it when you're an artist you love is getting older. Um, you can't help but wonder how much longer they're going to go. But I do think he's telling us some stuff. That's all I'm getting at.
0: And he wouldn't be the kind of person, I don't think, to say this is the Bob Dylan's farewell tour. No,
1: 2025. No, but the clamoring, Uh, the clamoring for tickets was equal to that. I would say it was very hard. I've never had trouble getting tickets to see Bob Dylan, like since I've started to see him. And this was difficult, like more difficult. So I think everyone is feeling like this could be, this is probably it. What I'm saying. I thought you were
0: going to say it's because of our book.
1: It is because of your book. Yes. And the center. Yeah. There's obviously renewed interest in seeing him. Before we go, and I, again, I'm sorry, I've kept us over here. I know some of you have things to do. Uh, probably a question you get all the time. Dylan's engagement himself. I know Dylan has people we know, both of all of us on this call know you reach out to Dylan's camp and there's certain people you talk to about can, what is, would Bob want to do this or can we do this with Bob stuff just to catch up people who don't know? Has Dylan been to the center yet? And was he engaged, to your knowledge, personally, with anything that you've been working on with this book or anything else going on with the Center? Going to go to – Mark is already shaking his head, so I don't like the answer. But I'm going to go to Parker first. <laughs> Parker, any Dylan engagement uh, with this work? No, not to my knowledge.
2: Uh, you know, it is fully authorized. So it went through, you know, Dylan's people, but Nothing. not uh, not to our knowledge. Um, and, and no, Dylan has not. Uh, the, the last time he came through Tulsa was – uh, just prior to the center actually opening to the public. And apparently he went to a Tulsa Drillers game. They're the AA minor league baseball team for the <laughs> LA Dodgers that are just down the street. So he drove ostensibly, he drove past the Bob Dylan center, but did not stop.
1: How does that so, make you feel Parker?
2: I don't really have any opinion. One way <laughs> or another about it. I, I would find it more surprising if he were sort of engaged with, the center or the past or, you know, just going through the archive, you know, some people take like, I guess he did it with Hank. Well, they were unfinished songs, Hank Williams or whatever. And we know the story about what became mermaid Avenue and how, you know, Dylan was supposed to get first crack at those songs. He's done it with other people's work, I guess, but he's not, you know, he's not someone who's going to like go back to his old work and, and, and finish it or go through the archive to like find things. Um, so yeah, it would be. I would have more feelings if he like did that. You know, to sort of be focused on on the horizon line, it makes more sense to be.
1: Yeah, adjacent Mark. to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa is the Woody Guthrie Center, and I got the. There's an intimation in the in your book, uh, Mark, that Dylan has visited the Woody Guthrie Center. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that was before my time in 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 Tulsa, but shortly after the uh, archive was sold. Dylan played in Tulsa, and he he dropped by the Woody Guthrie Center. So, the Woody Guthrie Archive, Bob Dylan Archive, Phil Oaks Archive, Tom Paxton, Cynthia Gooding, the Library of Harry Smith, and the Library of Izzy Young, some other small collections. The all of those were acquired by the George Kaiser Family Foundation here in Tulsa, which is a, a mm-hmm. philanthropic organization that does a ton for uh, early childhood education. Civic engagement issues around prisons and and recovery and women and so this was one piece of of their much larger initiative uh, for Tulsa and so Bob played and and came and and from my understanding met a handful of folks um, like only a few from uh, the George Kaiser Family Foundation George Kaiser and the story I was told was he was expecting, I think that it was like a photo op or something. And, and instead the, the center was empty and it was just a a few folks and, and, and Dylan was able to look around at things and, and invite, you know, members off, off the the tour bus to come and check things out. And I think it was uh, an enjoyable experience.
1: Okay. Nice. So him visiting the center, I don't know. It could happen. But thus far, no doubt. He's welcome to. <laughs> I know he listens to the show, Bob. Consider this an open invitation. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, that would be that would be lovely. So I was going to say, sorry, I was going
2: to say one of the cool things when you're thinking about like, is that uh, the Guthrie has the doors from Huntington where Dylan would go to visit Guthrie. So they were like. I mean, if you think about like a, a strange thing, you know, imagine showing Dylan like these are the doors from Huntington oh, that like you used to, you yeah. know, Gra- Grace Grace
0: Graystone. Yeah, yeah. Greystone, yeah, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. When he had Huntington's disease. Yes.
2: Sorry. Sorry.
0: Yes.
1: Yes. 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 And and I mean, I think in the book, as I recall, Dylan is particularly taken with the fact that some of Woody's paintings are on display, and he's like, "Woody painted that? Is that?" Am I getting that right? I think that's right.
0: That was from a uh, uh, a particular notebook called. Um, we we have some of his paintings uh, on display. One of Lincoln uh, that's owned by the Smithsonian. A couple that were not known to exist uh, until uh, in the last eighteen months or two years or so. Uh, yeah. Uh, a couple of portraits. This was from a book called Ouija Woody. And and it was a, a notebook that, that he was particularly taken with.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's telling. I think that he would, was keen to check out the Woody Guthrie center. And I hope, I hope at some point he does. I, um, from what I understand, and I don't know who told me this, uh, the last time Dylan was in Tulsa since the um, uh, opening of the, of the center, the Bob Dylan center, Tony Garnier from his band maybe walked through. Um, band members have walked through, but he didn't. So the likelihood of him wanting to do it some other time is probably low. But I just want to say uh, it's a remarkable thing you guys are, are working on there. So thank you for doing it. Real quick check, how's it doing? I mean, I was there when it was the grand opening, and it was it was busy among the people who were invited to come. Mark, is it is it doing particularly well, the Bob Dylan Center?
0: Yes. These figures, I can't vouch for their accuracy because I'm doing it off the top of my head. We've had, since we opened more than, or maybe it was just this year, more than 50,000 visitors. Wow. More, more than 30 countries from around the world. Uh, I think f- over 40% of our visitors this year, I believe, are international. Uh, it's It's been really great for uh, the city of Tulsa uh, in particular it's been a wonderful opportunity to to be able to show off the stuff and 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 tell cool stories and inspire people of their own creativity and, and yes yeah. uh capacity yeah
1: and uh just to keep it on the chicago tip i think i recently saw that uh, wilco swung by and and did a tour of the center is that is that right
0: yes hmm. yes they came through while they were on while they were on tour we gave them a book so yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully that <laughs> that wasn't left in Tucson or someplace. Um, uh, it still exists somewhere. But uh, uh,
1: I think I think I have their copy. It just took yeah, a circuitous uh, <laughs> circuitous route to get to me. Yeah, they, no, I'm just. They kidding. did
0: play in Cincinnati. Yeah, so uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> that's where the book was at one point, and we were all three of us here trying to figure out where the <laughs> hell my book was and we found out it was in Cincinnati just hanging out uh with uh Dwight Yoakum or something like that. Anyway, it's uh it's I'm so happy for you guys. Um I've already uh intimated what I think might be next for Bob Dylan in a in a morbid way. What's next for you guys and the center? Parker, any big plans coming up beyond uh getting this the word out about this book and anything you can speak to? Next year, I've
2: been doing this. Uh, hopefully, it will come out. Cool. <laughs> uh, I've been doing this three LP box set with a record label called Vinyl Me, Please, mm-hmm. all about the Chelsea Hotel. So, that's the next thing on my radar. Oh, for you? In okay. Early, yeah. For, yeah, for me, for early 2024. Yeah, and I know Mark's got this incredible exhibition coming up in early in February. I'm working on a,
0: a few exhibitions. I'm working on one called... How Many Roads, Bob Dylan and His Changing Times, 1961 to 1964, which we'll talk a little bit about the politics of the era, uh, very fraught politics from you know, civil rights, anti-war, Red Scare, sort of talking about what was happening and, and Dylan's place in it, not as a you know, savior figure, but as, as a you know, young 20-year-old you know, kid. Sort of navigating his times, becoming politically and culturally aware, and and what that sort of window meant. I'm also working on a an exhibition about Victor Hara, Chilean folk singer, and yeah. um, Phil Oakes, uh, mm-hmm. which we have a, a Phil Oakes okay. notebook from 1971 when he went to Chile and met Victor Hara, and and mm-hmm. we have been developing an ex- exhibition around that moment, which I'm very excited about. I have a question for you, Vish. Mm-hmm what comes out sooner a new Dylan record or the new shellac record
1: oh a new shellac record
0: okay all right well
1: we learned that uh, on uh, this re- did you catch this uh, episode i didn't I, was-
0: I was halfway through it yesterday as i was yeah. as i was doing doing holiday shopping yes
1: well if all has gone well uh, this past week shellac will have a, a final finally you should listen to, if you're, thank you for listening to the show and engaging with the show. Uh, uh, Mark, I appreciate that. Uh, and Parker, if you, I don't, Parker, do you listen to the show? You listen to the show. You've heard the show, right? i pop in from okay, time to sorry. time. <laughs> <laughs> I know you I like, like Mark. I know you like that Timbery issue. If you want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about that too, but we're running out of time. No, I do like that a lot. <laughs> My point is, uh, you will hear, uh, uh, Mark, it's the last thing I think we talked about really is the s- strange saga of the new Shellac album. Uh, but spoiler alert, if all has gone well, they should finally, after attempting to have many test pressings that had some failure or another, Steve was quite confident that by, yeah, last week, uh, as we're speaking, by last week, they should have had the fine. the artwork's done, everything's done. There was just some pressing issues—sorry, uh, pressing plant issues. Um, so, yeah, it's coming. I think it'll be out in 2024. I see no reason why it wouldn't be unless— there was some fiasco with the, the the most recent test pressing. So Dylan, I stand by my theory that Rough and Rowdy Ways might be the last album. That I think he made some real concluding statements on it. I don't want to say that, but uh I think that's I'm gonna stand by that, sadly. I hope that doesn't bum you out, Mark. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, Thank you for the question. Uh, I will link to uh, various things about the book and the Bob Dylan Center in the show notes, so I want people to click on those things. But if there's anywhere else you'd like people to, to, you know, web destinations that people should know about, uh, Mark, is there anything you'd like to point people to?
0: Certainly check out the Woody Guthrie Center as well, Um, our our sibling museum, uh, sibling center. And, I mean, yeah come to Tulsa it's
1: it's pretty great I mean I like I enjoyed I mean, it very much I want to come back and uh, yeah I, I want to come back because I feel like even though in the course of my days there I went to the center every single day I think there's more I could have asked about or I didn't even deign to be like hey can I learn more about uh time out of mind like I just didn't even think to ask. I just looked at, you guys brought me in and it didn't occur to me to be like, yeah, this is great. Show me more. I didn't want to be a jerk. So, uh, knowing that this is the experience that other people had, uh, I would like to come back and and focus in on some things. It's just, again, I don't mean to impose or assume that that would be welcome, but it is a regret that I'm like, oh shit, I could have asked more questions and asked to see more stuff. And maybe they would have accommodated it based on everyone else's experience in this book. Because, uh, guys you flew me all the way out there. I assume you wouldn't have minded if I had said, Do you think I could just see some stuff from this? I'm sure you would have been like, Yeah, we can I may I'm maybe I'm wrong. Sorry. Parker, would you would you have been like uh get the hell out of here, buddy? Go back to Canada. <laughs> the nerve.
2: <laughs> no, no, you are more than welcome. <laughs> I do uh, want to you come You're still more than welcome. So <laughs>
1: Thank you. I hope <laughs> I hope I can return someday when we're all there. Uh, at some point. Um, Parker, similar question. Any web destinations you'd like people to know about beyond uh, uh, the stuff about the book and the center?
2: No, no. I just would, uh, yeah, direct them to Tulsa to to visit the center. We, um, you know, besides Mark's new exhibit, well, there's an exhibition up on about, you know, that sort of expands upon the book. You can see a lot of the materials that are, are in the book on display right now. Uh, Mark has the new one he talked about covering 61 to 64. We have a new program in the micro cinema. Mm -hmm. So a whole new set of clips. It's really great. Uh, We've got some things in the works for the digital jukebox as well. And, you know, and like, just as we were all attesting, like I I haven't met anybody who's gone down to Tulsa who hasn't like left charmed by it. Uh, It's, it's, it's a wonderful place to spend a few days and explore. And, you know, every time I go, I've been going since about twenty. 16, there's, you know, that much more happening. Yeah. Um, so come and be part of the excitement and the, the,
1: you know, very historical place for all sorts of great and, and awful reasons. But I think you should go learn all about that too. Uh, and Mark is the, um, when I was there, there was a Sonic youth themed restaurant. Is that still there?
0: (laughs) Ah, Chimera cafe, uh, has Sonic youth, Themed tacos and food there. Um, I wonder. <laughs> I I think Lee Ronaldo when he was here experienced those. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I t- I, te- I, tex- really,
1: I texted yeah. him about it while I was there eating from it, and I texted him photos of the menu, and I believe he was aware of it. Yeah.
0: I wonder. I <laughs> that would be the. The, the the ultimate, uh, somebody there being rude to him and, and him going, do you know who I am?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm responsible for the name of your tacos. So, um, I'm sure. Anyhow.
1: No, they were all very nice. And I, I, I want to thank you endlessly again. Uh, yeah. On an infinite loop, thank you for bringing me to Tulsa. And I also yes. encourage everyone to visit the city and the Bob Dylan Center. Well, listen, Mark Parker, thank you so much for returning to this show and for the lovely... um experiences you've given to me personally and for uh, getting me this book. And it's really, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I wish you both the best of luck in the future. And I hope we talk soon when uh, Bob Dylan, Mixing Up the Medicine, uh, Volume 2 is released. (laughs) Thanks again.
2: Thank you, Vish. Thanks so much, Vish.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Oh, very special thanks again to Mark and Parker, uh, the editors of this great new book, Bob Dylan, Mixing Up the Medicine. I hope you enjoyed our chat. I did. It's really fun talking to those guys. It's uh, nice that uh, life has uh, brought us together. I think we all have a little mutual uh, affection for one another, so it's nice. Uh, in this case, uh, they're back on the show, and, and uh, in this case, it's the 828th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the entertainment one podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcast pretty much. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can also uh, like or follow creative control on various social media platforms. There's a link tree link in the show notes. And if you click on that, you can find me on whatever is still available, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, I'm on Instagram at Vishkana and I'm on Twitter at Vishkana and the and Vish Creative is where you can find the uh, podcast on Twitter. But like I say, go to the link tree, figure out what you want to follow me on, and I'll follow you back. Probably we'll see, we'll see what happens. I don't know. Also, please visit Patreon.com/slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to really and truly sustain this podcast. Uh, it's a, a weird as I'm speaking to you, a weird zone. I need to get that patreon up if i want the show to continue if i want to be able to do the work i've been doing uh it's getting harder to do it i don't have a lot of time and i i love to uh have the time and uh, time is money you don't know what you know (laughs) i'm just gonna spout a bunch of cliches at the end of this but i could use if i have more money i have more time i guess is the way to put it uh six dollars or more a month gets you access to exclusive content and also uh Uh, You get the episodes earlier than everybody else. There's lots of little perks there. So please visit patreon.com slash creative control. And if you believe in this show and wish it uh, was uh, around for a long time, uh, support the show today. Thank you so much. I also want to thank uh, the wonderful uh, Alberta record store, Blackbird Music, which has locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta. And you can order things directly from their site at blackbird.ca. I also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. They've all been supporting this show a long time, so thanks thanks to them. I also want to thank uh, Jim Guthrie, who's been supporting me a long time, too, as a friend. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org and listen to the wonderful music that he makes and uh, even provides for this show. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode with uh, Mark and Parker. Pick up this book. Bob Dylan mixing up the medicine. It's amazing. Essential uh, for any Bob Dylan fan. And uh yeah, check out the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma the next time you're there. Otherwise, I will talk to you very soon. Thanks again. Bye for now.